morning. Remember this portion of the story of God as it's written in the book that we love from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from his fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The word of the Lord. As always, if you'd open in your Bible to Genesis, right in the front of the Bible, chapter 3. If you hear something that piques your interest, you'll be able to find it. Hang on to it and think about it later. The story of the temptation and the fall of humankind out of fellowship with God and into alienation from Him is one of the best known stories of the Bible. Even people who aren't particularly religious or know very little else about the Bible know something about this story and that it involves a serpent and they think a piece of fruit or an apple and, and Eve and they know it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. I thought to myself, uh, this is a, there's, there's a big difference between crafty and knowing how to talk, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't that have been something kind of remarkable that a, a, a snake was talking? But... I don't know, maybe that wasn't remarkable for that time and that place. Uh, and, and, and even if it was remarkable for Eve, who was finding something new in creation every day, uh, as she did her job, which was with Adam, they were going around and learning the names, or naming the beasts, learning where they fit into creation, and, and seeing how they could best shepherd all of creation uh, as, as God's vice-regents uh, in creation, she would have been finding something new every day. And maybe this was just one of those new things. Maybe it didn't strike her as being something unusual. It also struck me that no connection was made between the serpent and Satan in this account. That doesn't mean there wasn't any, but it is clear that such a connection wasn't immediately obvious. To the woman, who would later be named Eve, the serpent represented nothing cosmic or extraordinary. There is no hint in this story at this point that this is the beginning of a history of, of uh, a beginning of a history-changing epic struggle between good and evil, between God and the great imposter. To Eve, 
this was just one more day of wonder in a world full of wonders. This is just a day in the garden like any other in which a piece of creation's puzzle presents itself for God's image bearer to consider as she goes about her work of discovering the truth about the creatures in her care and about herself and about her creator. Remember, the image bearers, the man and the woman, are charged with cultivating and expanding the garden's boundaries, naming and shepherding the many creatures that God has made and assuming an important role in tending God's creation so that the the goodness that God envisioned for his creation might come to pass. Eve was joining God in an ever-increasing scope of activities. It may have seemed wise to think that in order to accomplish this God-sized task that was laid out in front of her, it would be wise to become as much like God as possible. Now, through this serpent, creation itself seemed to be offering a convenient shortcut to accomplishing the task that God had sent out. Now, we get caught up in tasks, don't we? I mean, I, I, am I, I don't think I'm the only one here. We, we, we get caught up in a job that we are supposed to do, and we have to focus on it. If we lose focus, the job will be done poorly or won't get done. So we need to focus on what we are doing. And if the job is, even if if our greatest job is to be obedient to our creator, if if we're involved, if we're thinking about the thing that he's laid out in front of us to do today, we might forget that that task is not the most important thing in our life. Remaining faithful is the most important thing in our life. At first, Eve states that even touching the fruit was forbidden and carried with it a sentence of death. This, of course, was an embellishment of what God actually said since he never threatened them with death by just touching the fruit. But her embellishment, and it struck me that maybe she was teaching, thought she was teaching the snake. I don't know. But her embellishments suggest that she thought the danger was actually in the fruit itself, not in eating it in disobedience. The serpent addressed then her fear of the fruit. He found a, something he could grab onto. And he left out her loyalty and her love for God. He focused on the fruit and he said, it won't kill you. Just touching it will prove what I'm saying. It will give you wisdom, and God already knows this. How could this fruit be evil? It was beautiful to see, it was refreshing to taste, and it seemed the essence of wisdom to take it. Why would God deny this to anyone? Is he holding something back for himself? Is he really looking out for me, or are there some things he expects me to look out for on my own? Perhaps this was a hidden next step 
Eve was, perhaps she was thinking that this is a hidden next step that was left for the image bearers to discover on their own. By this time, Eve would have discovered so many unexpected things in those first extraordinary weeks, months, or years, or however long they were together before, before this happened. Maybe the serpent was helping her to discover a blessing that God wanted her to take for herself once she had matured enough to handle it. And we've been using that excuse ever since. Well, that's a great rule. And, you know, it was a great, at one point in my life, that was an important rule to follow. And for everybody else, I think that is a really good rule. But I've, I've gotten to a point in my life, and I've matured to a point in my life, that I think my circumstances are unique and different and aren't covered by this rule. We've been using this, this whole line of reasoning, and we use it very effectively. Matter of fact, the more intelligent a person it is, the more convincing their lie to themselves becomes. Surely God wanted them to be as wise as they could be in order to manage his creation, to accomplish the God-sized task that he had set before them. But the task that God had set out before them was never meant to be their all-consuming focus. The point of tending God's creation as his royal governors was to celebrate and enjoy their unique and intimate relationship with their creator. Unique in all of creation. Their creator, the God that they imaged. Years ago, when my grandson was smaller than me, he was five or six years old, and he was absolutely fascinated by my log splitter. I have a hydraulic log splitter. And he just thought that was the coolest machine on the face of the planet. And helping Grandpa to split wood was just high on his list of really fun things to do. So he would get dressed up in a long sleeve shirt and, and, uh, and have uh, some, <laughs> Britta brought him some boots, some uh, lace-up shoes to wear that were all leather, some gloves, even put a sweatband on him. And he would come out at six years old and help Grandpa with his really cool log splitter. And he'd be telling me all about the, this is the greatest log splitter, Grandpa. That's so cool. Now, anybody who's ever worked with a six-year-old knows that if your goal is to get the job done as quickly, as safely, and as efficiently as possible, it doesn't include a six-year-old. But that's, that wasn't the point, was it? It was good to have him bending over to pick things up. I, I, you know, I realized watching that that I have only so many bendovers left in my back. Uh, but uh, it was us working together. That was the cool thing. That was the fun thing that made it worth doing. And likewise, in the Garden of Eden, if, if God wanted the job to get done quickly and efficiently, he would have done it all himself. But it was all about the joy and the love of doing it with us. The task was important. But it wasn't the most important thing. The most important, the point of all of it, was to have something to do together that would bring them closer, that would create joy between them. 
The danger was never in the fruit. It was always in the heart of the image bearers. The danger was putting all of that love and all of that joy at risk by jeopardizing their relationship with God. It was wisdom that Eve was seeking. There was nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, there was everything good about seeking wisdom. So how should she, how should any of us go about seeking wisdom to guide our lives and make us able servants of God? Solomon, king of David, a son of King David, desired wisdom as a blessing from God. He was very young when he took over from his father, who was a very well thought of and able king, and he was awestruck by the responsibility. And God basically said, I will give you, ask of me and I will give you whatever your heart desires. And what Solomon asked was wisdom. Wisdom so that I may govern well this people that you have given me to govern. And God was pleased by that and gave him wisdom. But even though he sought this blessing from God and God willingly and abundantly fulfilled Solomon's prayer, Solomon's later choices took some of the same detours as Adam and Eve's choices. He tried to separate wisdom from obedience, obedience and fellowship with God so that he could use it for his own purposes. Sometimes we rush in to do a thing and, and we are as if we were saying, God, I've got this. That's all right. You, you go help somebody else. I've got this. I've got this taken care of. And we go about our task and we use the wisdom and the lights that we steer by and that's a very dangerous time. Like I said, when you get up in the morning, I don't pray about whether God wants me to choose Cheerios or cornflakes. But somewhere along the process of the day, as I'm making my way through my day, doing the things I need to do, there come about choices where I really do need to consult with God and start listening for him. Because that relationship with him is central to everything. When we break fellowship with God in our search for wisdom, or any virtue, our search for wisdom, our search for righteousness, our search for justice, our search for love, when we break fellowship with God in that search, we find nothing but sorrow and emptiness. The book of Ecclesiastes reveals that apparently Solomon's wisdom did not bring him any more joy or satisfaction than Adam or Eve's search for wisdom. As a matter of fact, it drove him to despair. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, a cheery little book. <laughs> I'll read you uh, one of the first paragraphs in it here. This is Solomon speaking. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity or futility and striving after wind. 
What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Solomon was a lot of fun at parties at the end of his life. It's a a bleak book, not because wisdom is bad, but because somewhere along the line, when Solomon said, God, I've got this. You've given me wisdom. I'm going to use it. He forgot to stay in touch with God. And before long, God's purposes faded. And Solomon's own purposes, his own wisdom, and what he thought was best separated him from the heart and the mind of God and left him alone with the wisdom that he had distilled out of God. And it was empty. Solomon's view of wisdom was not always this awful, this futile. He wrote, an awful, he wrote another book about wisdom called, uh, or collected a, a book called the Proverbs, and he devotes two chapters to wisdom in, uh, in, in, uh, in the book of Proverbs. And in, that, in those chapters, uh, wisdom is portrayed as a woman. She speaks for herself here. I'll read it. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth in the fields, nor the first dust of the world, When he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of man. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So Solomon didn't always feel about wisdom the way he did when he, taught, when he wrote Ecclesiastes. I mean, this, this is one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible, I think. It's, it's full of drama. Uh, and and uh, it, the wisdom of God actually takes the form of a person in this piece of revelation. We learn here that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And it is. But we learn in today's account and in life as we age in life that fear is only a beginning and wisdom fails if it remains there. And this morning's reading is proof of it. Eve's exaggeration regarding the danger of even touching the fruit was fearing God. But fear was not enough to resist temptation. The simple do's and don'ts of moral behavior and fearing the consequences of misbehavior is sufficient spiritual enlightenment for four or five-year-olds. But you can't expect a profound wisdom that will help you make your way in life, that will teach you what's at the core of life, if your understanding of God has not progressed beyond your experience of Him in grade school, VBS, or Bible camp. Fear is a beginning, and it's a good beginning, but it's a beginning. Come, eat my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. This isn't about fear. True wisdom calls out. True wisdom that comes from the person of God actually fulfills all the promises that Eve thought she found she would find in that piece of fruit and that Solomon thought he would find when he delved into all wisdom. It's not a ration of dried platitudes and dusty principles. It is rich, it is sensual and sustaining and it is not in isolation from God. Eve and ultimately Solomon chose to wield wisdom for their own purposes. But wisdom in these verses seems impossible to own. She has been by God's side before time and matter were created. She is possessed only by God. I was beside him as a master workman and I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him. Rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. That's an incredible phrase, having my delight in the sons of men. Wisdom isn't a commodity. It isn't an abstraction or a virtue. Wisdom is a person. The Apostle John tells us who this master craftsman was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the beginning. With God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The author of Hebrews tells us about the extent of wisdoms, which we now know as Jesus. The extent of Jesus' delight in humankind went so far as that for the joy set before him from the, the joy of sharing the work of creation and of life with his creatures. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Wisdom cannot be possessed or eaten. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom is Jesus Christ who can be confessed with our lips and believed with our whole heart. 
But regardless of how wise we become, how skilled we become, how attuned to the heart and mind of God we are, regardless of how important the task is that he gives us, how critical it is that we stay focused and and do our part in that task, we will always be servants to him. We will always be servants to him and his wisdom and not the other way around. We will all, it will always be more important that we approach him with humility and a willing, with a childlike willingness to be obedient. Creation holds even now. And we know better than many people in many churches this morning. Creation holds many wonders. And it also holds a lot of cautions. There's much we can learn about God and our place in life by paying attention to what we discover in creation, in our everyday natural lives. Our greatest temptations are generally in our everyday experiences. Those that get us to obsess, to focus, to be caught up in ourselves and the importance of our duties and our goals, the hunger and our craving that we cannot ignore, and the belief that a boundary God has set will deny us true happiness forever. That's a lie. Real wisdom, wisdom that explains what's really important, wisdom that empowers us to faith, and hope, real wisdom is a person. Solomon paints this picture. Real wisdom is a wild woman dancing with God and making all that there is out of nothing. She is he, the one who delights in us, dies for us, and promises his life in exchange for the mess that we have made of ours. Wisdom calls us to surrender to Jesus Christ, to rejoin him in tending his broken and his suffering creation in the hope and the knowledge of the new creation that is coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are still, the image is clouded when we are isolated from you, we, we have a hard time tuning our heart and mind to yours. And creation, Lord, is, uh, well, it's beyond saving. And yet, we can make bits and pieces of it here and now for the time better by listening to what you would have us do, by acting like you, by bringing a cup of cold water clothing the naked, visiting those who are in need and and fearful and depressed, Lord, and doing any good thing in your name, we can do the job that was originally, at least something of it, that was originally set aside for us. I pray that you would teach us the importance of doing that, but Lord God, grant that we may never wander away from you, particularly in the attempt to do your will to serve you. Help us always to come back in obedience and surrender to you 
because you are our wisdom. In Christ's name, amen.